Psalm 79 is quite a bit shorter than the 78th Psalm that we looked at last time that we were together. We went through all 72 verses of Psalm 78. Uh, tonight we've got 13 verses to go through, so this will be a little more leisurely and we'll be able to dig in a little bit more deeply here this evening. But I want to go ahead and read uh, to you as you follow along in your own Bibles. Uh, Psalm 79, beginning in verse 1, and I'm reading out of the New King James Version of God's Word. This is a psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. Your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. How long, Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will, you, will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. Oh, do not remember former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us. For we have been brought very low. Help us, O oh God, of our salvation for the glory of your name and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your namesake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servants which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power. Preserve those who are appointed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom their reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people and sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise to all generations. And Father, we pray that you'd have your way in our hearts as we look at this psalm tonight. Might your Holy Spirit be with us. Might he do his work in opening the eyes of our hearts to see your truth. Give us understanding, Lord, as only you can. Lord, would you bring glory to, your, to, to, to our Lord Jesus Christ. May God have your way in our hearts as we continue before you. Thank you, Lord, for your mercies. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may be seated. As we look at this 79th Psalm tonight, we see that, again, this is a Psalm of Asaph. I, I had shared with you uh, uh, several weeks ago that uh, we continue in the Psalms of Asaph up through Psalm 83. And then in Psalm 84, we pick up with uh, a different psalm. This, this is going to be the psalm of the sons of Korah there in 84. But here in, in Psalm 79, 
as we've seen in the in the past, as uh, in, in these other psalms that, that that are attributed to Asaph, in some of them, and I'm thinking of in particular Psalm 74, uh, which has uh, much the same theme, different words. There's some similarities in some of the wording that that we see, but but uh, the the theme is is as much the same as uh, the psalmist there was um, ba- basically lamenting the, the, the reality of Jerusalem having been um, destroyed, being invaded and destroyed. We see the same thing here in Psalm 79. And what would be the occasion for this? When was Jerusalem destroyed? When did uh, members of other nations, armies of other nations come into Jerusalem and, and, and wreak havoc and, and, and destroy the city. Well, several times there was damage being done, but we, we, we've got to look at some, something very, very extreme here from the wording that, that we see. And like Psalm 74, it does appear that the best timing for this would have been when Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon. Now, Asaph, uh, the worship leader, one of the primary, one of the three primary worship leaders of King David, he lived 300 years, 400 years before this. And so, like we did with Psalm 74, we have to take the meaning of a psalm of Asaph as really meaning a psalm of the sons of Asaph. Even as we looked at in, in, in uh, Psalm 84, that's a psalm of the sons of Korah. Uh, th- that's what, how we have to view this. Although one way to look at it would be this. Asaph, perhaps the worship leader of King David, perhaps it was him, and he wrote from the perspective of a prophet. Th- these are prophetical words rather than words depicting history. But, but I, I, I think as we see this, we're, we're just going to approach this from the perspective of one of the sons of Asaph, uh, wrote this several hundred years after Asaph lived, which would have been, would have been right around 600 B.C. Uh, it was 605 B.C. when the first uh, uh, wave uh, of um, uh, Jewish people, Israelites, were taken into captivity in Babylon, and it happened three different times up through 586 B.C. So right around 600 B.C. is when this would have taken place, some 400 years later. Uh, And we're going to be uh, taking a look at that from this perspective here this evening. Uh, And one of the reasons that we want to do this is because um, we, we do know, uh, in, in reading the commentaries on this, one commentator commented that the Jews read Psalms 79 and 137 on the ninth of the month Abib, which is the day on which they call to remembrance the Chaldean and the Roman destructions of Jerusalem. So the Chaldean, again, right around 600 B.C., and the Roman destruction took place in 70 A.D., as we know. Uh, those uh, are called to memory on this one date, the date, the 9th of Abib, and they always read Psalm 79 
to commemorate that as well as Psalm 137. So I, I think that's a good reason to uh, view it in this way as well as having been written of that particular occasion. Well, as we see these first several verses, we, we can take ver- verses 1 through 4 as an, uh, in, as, as an introduction and, and really the, what we would call the complaint of the writer. Uh, the complaint being, this is the issue that's going on for which I'm praying. This is what I've got going on in my life for which I need prayer. For, and, and so I'm bringing this to you, God, so that you can do something about this. That, that, that's, a, that's what we mean by complaint. It doesn't mean that he's complaining to God. He's stating these things to God, and he's asking God to be involved in somehow bringing resolution, somehow bringing comfort, somehow bringing hope, some, doing something about this. So anytime we have something that we're praying about, you know, um, you guys pray for something probably pretty much every day. But then something takes place, some kind of a situation arises, and you say, Lord, you know what's going on here, blah, 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 blah. That's your complaint before the Lord as you're taking it to him for, in, in prayer. Well, the complaint of the writer here is that Other nations, as we see here in verse 1, have come into God's inheritance. Now, often in the Old Testament, we see the word inheritance, and that's speaking about God's people. But here specifically, it is speaking about God's land. They came into Jerusalem, and obviously through the words we see here, your holy temple they've defiled, they have laid Jerusalem in heaps. And of course, that description Uh, very well describes what we see that took place uh, uh, when uh, Babylon came in uh, to Jerusalem in 605 B.C. Going on, the dead bodies of your servants, they've given us food for the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We've become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. I want to bring some historical context to this, especially when we see that in the next stanza, as he writes, how long, Lord, are are you going to be angry forever and all this? You know, let's bring some context to what has taken place here. Now, in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, in verses 15 to 21, we see a description or an account, a brief one, yes, but uh, an account of the fall of Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. It's important to see that aspect of this. That's why I wanted to read this out of Second Chronicles because it speaks about what the Lord had done to prevent this. God is bringing judgment to his people, isn't he? Because they 
have ignored him. They, they haven't listened to him. They, they had been worshiping other gods. They had been worshiping idols. They had even uh, uh, built an altar inside the temple for worship of Baal. These are the kinds of things that they had done. And going on. And, and, and as we see there, till there was no remedy. Verse 17, therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans. Notice, this is a work of God. He brought against the, his own people the king of the Chaldeans, that would have been Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who killed their young men with the sword in the, in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon for they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Some time ago I mentioned to you guys that the reason for the 70-year period of time that the people would be away from Jerusalem is because the land had to rest. God provided the Sabbath for rest for both mankind and for land as well. Those who were farming, they, they would farm for six years and then they would let the, the land be still and not farm it and let it rest. It would still produce some. But it wasn't tilled, it wasn't, it, it, nothing was planted, nothing, it just rested. That's what God commanded. That, that's how he designed the earth for that particular reason. And it's interesting that uh, over the years, in modern times, that, that kind of, of thing, while it may not necessarily be a seven-year period of time, but people have recognized that if you just leave land alone and let it rest, it is much more fruitful. Uh, so it, it's something that, 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 that God designed in his creation. Judah did not allow the land to rest. You know, just as the, 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 the same old thing has been going for hundreds and thousands of years, you know. Uh, if we just keep going, we'll make more. What? Money. That becomes the motivation. We'll just make more money if we keep working. You know, and uh, that's a reason that, that people don't take a Sabbath rest during a week because of work. Many, many times that's a reason. But that's what took place. That's a historical, uh, uh, in the historical context, we, we see that's a description a brief one of what took place there in Jerusalem. Now, Jeremiah had prophesied this in chapter 19, verses 4 through 9. And of course, he's speaking for God, of course, as we know, as a prophet. Because they have forsaken me, God speaking through him, 
and made this an alien place, made Jerusalem an alien place. It's like he doesn't even recognize it because of all of the idolatry. That's what he's speaking about, right? Made this an alien place because they've burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they, their fathers, nor the kings of Judah have known and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. They have also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, so speaking of child sacrifices, obviously. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall no more be called Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hands of those who seek their lives. Their corpses I will give as meat for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth. I will make this city desolate and a hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all its plagues. And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his friend in the siege and in the desperation with which their enemies and those who seek their lives shall drive them to despair. Now, why would they do that? Why would people be led to eat the flesh of their children and friends? Well, because of the siege of Babylon on Jerusalem. They would not allow any supplies to come into the city. They built a siege up against the wall, and it was a, it was a, a three-year siege. And before long, they would run out of supplies. They would run out of water. They would run out of food and out of desperation. Those who had died, they would begin to eat the flesh up just in order to survive. Now, we, we've, heard other, we've heard stories of other incidents like that. But just imagine how desperate you've got to be to eat the flesh of your own child. It's unthinkable, isn't it? It's unthinkable. And yet... That's what they came to. Now going back further in time, in Deuteronomy 28, obviously this is one of the books of Moses, which means that this was written probably around, oh, let, let's say from 1500 B.C. to 1400 B.C., somewhere in there which would have been somewhere around eight to 900 years before King Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem. Eight or nine centuries. Now, we can't even imagine that length of time. You know, we can't even imagine that length of time. But it was that period of time in between there. And, and the reason I, I speak of Deuteronomy 28, because in that chapter... We see that God 
through Moses, gives to the people of Israel the blessings for obedience and the curses of disobedience. Blessings of obedience, curses of disobedience. And just going something like this, if, if you obey me, I will bless you in these ways. If you disobey me, you will be cursed in these ways. The chapter begins with the blessings of obedience from, chapter, from verse 1 through verse 14. And then the curses of disobedience is from verse 15 through verse 68. Uh, that's a lot of verses. For the, the, the curses or the, the uh, uh, curses of disobedience. I want to read with you some of these verses. I'm actually going to read verses uh, uh, 15 through 19 and then 25 and 26 simply because we don't have time to read all of them. But I, I would encourage you, read that chapter sometime soon and just see what God has to say about the blessings that will come if his people obey them and, on, other, on the other hand, the curses that will come if they disobey him. But in, in verse 15, the Lord says, But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. And then skipping on to verse 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and no one shall frighten them away. And then there are just many other curses that will come because of disobedience. But I wanted to point this out to you to see what God had told his pe people centuries before if they should not take heed to his word. If they should not take heed to his word. Now, something I want to add at this point also is this. I, I don't have this verse uh, listed, so it's not going to be showing, showing up on your, on your screen. But something that I've shared with you guys before, because I, I think we get the, we're able to capture the heart of God with this particular verse. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. The context there is that God and, and Moses are having a conversation about the people of Israel, their disobedience, God wanting to bring judgment upon them. Um, Moses uh, basically praying for them. But God says this. He says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would obey me always. They, obey, uh, they would keep my law and obey me always. That it, will, that it will be well with them forever. The reason he gives us commands, the reason he gives us laws is for our blessing. 
He understands. He knows what's going on in the world, and so many times we don't. You know, I, I, I've shared with you guys often how we, we have to understand the reality of spiritual warfare. Something we don't see. Not visibly, but we certainly see the results of it. But the point being that there's so many things that we don't understand. God wants to protect us, and so he gives us laws. He gives us commands. If you do these things, if you stay away from these things, then it would be much better for you. You know, and, you know, I mean, bottom line is this. Um, if we follow his laws, our lives are better. We stay out of trouble. I mean, for example, how many marriages would be better off if nobody ever committed adultery? For example, that's one of the laws. Thou shalt not commit adultery, right? That's just one example. But that's what God has for us. So he gives us the commands for our own good, for our own safety, for our own protection from the enemy, what he will do if we get out from under God's covering in that way. Well, having read all those, back over to Psalm 79, and we see what has taken place here in the city. The, the, the dead bodies, you know, uh, food for the birds and, and, the, and, the, and the, the, the beasts of the, of the earth and so forth. Uh, blood has been shed like water, no one to bury the bodies and so forth. It's become a reproach. Uh, a, a hissing, as Jeremiah wrote, uh, just a, 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 a mockery. It's like you just can't believe that this is taking place to God's people. Really God's people? Is he really a God after all? People will be saying things like that, right? In mockery. Um, and, and then the psalmist writes, how long, Lord? How long? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Now, I wanted to set the context historically, prophetically, as well as God voicing uh, his commands to the, to, to the people and giving them an understanding of the way that they'll be blessed if they follow these commands or, or the ways that they'll be cursed if they don't. You know, and if everyone had an understanding of those things then what was taking place at this time would make perfect sense. Of course, they didn't have what we have available to us in terms of God's Word. I mean, I have, I, I don't know how many Bibles I own. I, I don't. I got some here in my office here, some in my office at home, you know, and um, I use primarily just a couple of them, uh, but I also have my, my um, iPad with my Bible program on it, and I have access to tons of Bibles and tons of materials in it, you know, and, 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 and we can be, begin to kind of take it for granted the, the truth of God's Word. We have, we have, we have it so, we, we become so familiar with it. Um, 
You guys know the saying, familiarity breeds contempt? I think that's what happens with even God's Word, with Bibles. But my point being, they didn't have access to God's Word like we do. You know, the, the people didn't have, there wasn't a, a scroll of all of the commandments uh, in, in every household. It just wasn't that way. Very, there were very few of them. Kings had it, the priests had it, uh, it, they, 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 they had, it, had it in the, in the temple and so forth, but, you know, it, it just wasn't available. But the Word of God was passed down orally. But if they had an understanding, then all this would make sense. And, and perhaps the, the, the writer of this psalm would not be saying, How long, Lord? Uh, are you going to be angry forever? Will, will your jealousy burn like fire? But on the other hand, maybe he did have an understanding, and yet what he saw was so devastating that, that he was just speaking emotionally right here. You know, is, is, isn't it enough, Lord? Please help us, you know. And, and, and he goes on, but he, but he says this in verse 6. He asked God to, rather than pouring his wrath out on his own people, to pour it out on his enemies or those who don't know him. Verse 6, pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. God, turn and place your wrath on them, on the ones who came, the ones who came to destroy us the ones who came and has laid Jerusalem waste, destroyed your temple, turn your wrath upon them. Even Jeremiah, as we see the psalmist here writing out of that brokenness over what he saw, Jeremiah wrote this, in Jeremiah chapter 10, after writing about the coming captivity of the Jews in Babylon, he said, O oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. This is in verse 23 to 25, chapter 10. O oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It, it, it is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. O oh Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you and on the families who do not call on your name, for they have eaten up Jacob, devoured him and consumed him and made his dwelling place desolate. You know, as a prophet, he's, he's, he's writing about what was going to be taking place. He had just spoken about the captivity of Jerusalem, uh, of, of the Jews out of Jerusalem and Babylon and so forth. Uh, but, but he says much the same thing. You know, Jer Jeremiah uh, was known as the weeping prophet. You know, brought, brought his prophecies, uh, brought, brought the word of the Lord to the people, and no one ever responded. No one ever responded. And so, the weeping prophet. But it's interesting. If we turn in the New Testament to Peter, 1 Peter, chapter 4, Verses 17 and 18. Peter wrote, 
For the time has come, and this is in the context of, of suffering just before this, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. You get that? The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? He's quoting there from Proverbs 11.31. If the righteous one is scarcely saved, now Isaiah writes that there is none righteous, no, not one. How can anyone be righteous? Well, we know how we're righteous, right? We're made righteous by the blood of Christ. He removes our sin and he gives us his robe of righteousness so that we can stand before God in the righteousness of God and be able to commune with Him and have fellowship with Him without fear of judgment because our sins have been taken away, covered by the blood of Jesus. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? But even then, as, as Peter writes, after Jesus had given Himself for our sins, he quotes from uh, um, Proverbs there, as I said, and, and, and he says, even if the if the righteous is scarcely saved, then what will happen to the ungodly? Well, that's something to think about. But you know, guys, we can be very quick to ask God to bring judgment on His enemies, even making the assumption, like often we see with 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 David in, in his Psalms but making the assumption that our enemies are God's enemies. But we've got to step back a bit and understand that sometimes those who are giving us a bad, a bad time perhaps have sent by, been sent by God for some reason to... Um, us. Maybe there's a refining taking place, the refiner's fire. Maybe that's happening. Or perhaps that person has been sent by a demon. Or that person is just simply honorary and doing it on his or her own. But whatever the case, God is going to use it. God's going to use it. We find throughout the scriptures, throughout history, God uses, like, like with Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, he uses evil and wicked hearts of men to accomplish purposes of judgment and or chastisement. God does that. And so, we see that we can be quick to pray for God's judgment upon them that are coming against us. But having said that, God had already said to Jeremiah, or through Jeremiah, chapter 25, verse 12, then it will come to pass 
when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So God had already stated that even as he was using Babylon to bring chastisement upon the people of Israel, uh, many of them being killed, the nation would be preserved there in Babylon for a 70-year period of time and then brought back to the land after it had rested, right? But God already said, I am going to judge Babylon for their iniquities. And some people will ask the question, well, how is it that God will send Babylon to Jerusalem to do his work of chastisement and then bring judgment upon them? Well, he only used them according to what they were. Because Nebuchadnezzar, as a king, desired to rule the world. He wanted all nations to bow before him. And so in with, 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 with that kind of, of mindset, God used him to destroy Jerusalem and to bring the captives back to Babylon for a 70-year period of time. But in, their, but in his wickedness, he and the nation would be judged. God is always, always faithful to judge righteously. So when we ask God to judge somebody, you know, somebody says something to us, does something against us, whatever, we ask God, God, would you take care of them? I don't want to because vengeance is yours, but would you do it and do it quickly? You know, smite their teeth, oh God, kind of a thing. You know, and uh, let's be careful. There's biblical precedence for the idea that God judges his own people first. It's important for us to understand that. Now we see in verse 8, the psalmist is now coming to a place of acknowledging that, oh, indeed, we have sinned. Oh, do not remember former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us, for we have been brought very low. So he's acknowledging the reality of past judgment. And he's asking the Lord to forget it, to, to, to not remember those iniquities. At the same time, he's also asking for mercy. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us. And so we see this psalmist writing these things that he began with, and now he's coming to, to, the, to the right place, really. Just, Lord, show us mercy. We have sinned against you. Don't remember it. Don't remember it in the sense that it has to be visited by you. Show us your mercies. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us. So this cry for mercy. In verse 9, help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. That's the right place to be, right? Only do it. Help us, O God, of our salvation. Our salvation is only in you, of you, and from you. 
And for your glory, help us. Not because we deserve it. We need it. We're not worthy of it. We haven't done anything to merit it. Show us mercy, God. Because we do deserve to be punished. But God, show us mercy for your great name's sake, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your name. And deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake, for the glory of your name and for your name's sake. Now, those are right attitudes toward God, aren't they? As we pray for ourselves, as we pray for others around us, certainly we pray for their blessing. You know, um, something's going on with somebody in your family, you're praying for them, uh, interceding on behalf of them. Yeah, you're praying that God extends his hand of blessing upon them. But not because they deserve it, because God can bring blessing. And because he is who he is, he wants to bring blessing, but he also is just, he's holy and he's righteous. And, you know, iniquity has to be dealt with. Sin has to be dealt with. Now, we have our sins forgiven We will not pay the ultimate price for our sin. Jesus did. We're going to go to heaven if we place our faith in Jesus. But at the same time, there are consequences to sin that we commit. We go to, uh, we we look at King David and and in his sin with Bathsheba uh, and the murder of her husband. You know, when Nathan the prophet came to him, he said, You're forgiven, you shall not die, but the child who will be born shall die. Consequences to sin. Now, on the overall grand scheme of things, I mean, we we might say, well, that's not fair. Well, I think that's one illustration of the fact that no single person can sin without it somehow having an impact on people around us. And certainly if a father sins, a dad sins, it's going to somehow have some kind of impact on his children. But the point being here that as they cried out for this mercy, it was for the sake of God and his name only. In Isaiah 43, verse 25, we see these words. Isaiah writing, For God, I, even I, am He, God speaking, who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now, how is it that that's for His sake? Because He will be known as a merciful God. That's who He is. You remember in Exodus 33, when when Moses asked God, God, show me your glory. Reveal to me your glory. Show me your glory. 
And when the Lord did that, you know, he set Moses in the cleft of the rock. He put his hand uh, uh, over the opening so he couldn't see him. He passed by. And then when he removed his hand, Moses could see the, the, his, uh, his back parts, his hinder parts, or the afterglow. And, um, but in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 34, we see God describing himself, revealing his glory, and the, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, was the very first word. And mercy is mentioned another time in that description. The only quality that's mentioned twice as God reveals his glory to Moses. Anytime God is seen for who he truly is, he's glorified. God is merciful. But he also is just. And God's mercy and justice meet at the cross of Jesus Christ, don't they? Going on here. This, this whole idea of for the name of God, for his name's sake, for his glory. Guys, is that our heart? Is that your heart? Is that mine? Is that our heart? To glorify and honor God in all things? Is it our utmost concern that he would be seen for who he truly is? That somehow he would be seen through us in, 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 in the way that we respond to things? How was it that Jesus said people would know that we are his disciples? If you have what? Love one for another. He said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, love one another. Then he said, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Loving the way that Jesus has loved us. Meaning bottom line is people around us are more important to us than we are to ourselves. That was Jesus' heart. That's how he lived that's how he died, because we were more valuable to him than he was to himself. When we love that way, he's going to be seen in truth for the way that he loves. His name will be honored and glorified. Amen? One of the questions that's asked here as we, re as we read on, Um, verse 10 why should the nations say where is their God let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servants which has been shed uh, where is their God a question and if you look up that phrase there are lots of places where that question is asked and it's in the same context it's a, it's a follower of God it's one of his people saying 
God, why should the heathen say, why should these nations say, why should they say, where is their God? And, and, and they're saying, please show up here, do something, so that they don't ask that question. That's basically what they're saying there. And so the, 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 the psalmist here is framing it in the same way. I mean, God brought the nation of Babylon to judge, to, to, to uh, chastise the people of, of uh, Jerusalem, of Judea, and other people are going to be saying, well, what happened to their God, the one who brought them in, delivered them from Egypt? What happened, where, what happened to him? Where is he? You know, that kind of a thing. In that day, in those, in those ancient times, whenever one nation had victory over another in a war, it was truly seen as the God of the victorious nation having power over the God of the defeated nation. So, when this happens to Israel, people are going to be looking at the God of Israel as weak, small, of no consequence, right? That's the idea behind that. Going on, verses 11 and 12, we see uh, the writer basically writing, God, please listen to us. And he, this is how he words it. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power. Preserve those who are appointed to die. So the, the groaning of the prisoner. Lord, we are in prison here and we're just groaning in, 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 the, in the pain and the misery that we're suffering. Hear us. Hear us. You know, and, you know, when we are desperate for God, when something's going on, if something very heavy and it, it has shaken us to the core and, and we're crying out to God and, and, and we're weeping, crying out that God would do something, you know, a, a groaning can take place. I mean, there can be noises that come from us. I, I mean... I'm certain at least some of you have groaned before God. Literally groaned before God. I have. I have. He hears us when we do that. He hears our prayers. This is what the, the psalmist is, is, is requesting, that, that God would hear those prayers. Uh, it's, 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 it's another way of saying we are crying out to you, God, please hear us. The groaning of the prisoner. Uh, verse 12, and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom their reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. Even as they're reproaching God because of his apparent weakness, return sevenfold to them as you pour out your wrath on them. That's, that's, that's what he's saying. I mean, he, he's very, he's very um, comfortable with the idea that vengeance belongs to God. But he's saying to God, take that vengeance. Take it, please. But as we said, we read already, he spoke through, through uh, Jeremiah that he was going to judge Babylon. He is going to do that. You know, let's make no mistake about it. God always is righteous in his judgment. 
always righteous in his judgment. We can never really say that's not fair, except for the fact, except for the fact, it's really not fair that Jesus should pay the price for my sin. But he chose to do that. So the last verse, verse 13. So we, your people and sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. We will show you forth, or excuse me, we will show forth your praise to all generations. So the, the psalmist is writing here, uh, you know, he, he gives a complaint. He asks about how long, you know, are you going to be mad at us forever? And then, please don't remember our sins. Pour mercy out upon us. Take vengeance on, 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 on these nations that have come against us. Babylon in particular, be, be, take vengeance upon them. And then so we, the wording there, so we, as you do this, we will praise you. We will give you thanks forever and we will praise you as you respond to this prayer. Now, I'm going to kind of throw a little bit of a wrench into that. We know that God did indeed judge Babylon, but it wasn't because of this prayer, because God had already said that he would do it, and because he, being who he is, he must judge righteously, so they needed to be judged for what they did because of the reason that they did so. Um, but the wrench is this. What if God doesn't answer our prayer? We cry out to him. God, please do this. So many times we hear, I mean, people are, are, they're asking people to pray for you. They're praying and then the, the answer comes. God delivers. He, he, he saves. He, there's a healing that takes place or you got that job or whatever it might be. You know, and, oh, God is good. God is good. God is good. But what, what if the answer doesn't come that way? Is God still good? And, and will we still praise him? Is he worthy to be praised anyway? Of, of course he is. So many times we don't know why, you know, and uh, why, why it is that he does things the way that he does. But everything he does is out of his love, his goodness, his kindness, his wisdom, his knowledge, his justice, righteousness, his holiness, his compassion, everything. And, we, and we, we, we t we've talked about this. On, on, on Saturday I was talking about that as in terms of God's faithfulness, you know, and, and just the reality of who he is, all the ways that we can define him, describe him, all of his attributes, you know, um, all of his character, his nature. Um, he's always acting with all those things still being uh, a part of what he's doing. So, when we're suffering, when we're in pain, doesn't mean God's not good. And if things don't change, 
you know, um, and, and, and as you guys know, that, 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 that's kind of where, where I am right now with, with, with my precious wife and this disease that she's got. And she's, you know, to see the changes in her over, uh, nearly a three-year period of time now, it's just heartbreaking. It's amazing. But, you know, um, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that I know my Savior. I'm so thankful that I know His Word so I know what He's like. I know who He is. And I'm so thankful that God gave me an understanding that I judge Him according to what his word has to say, not according to my own um, interpretation of the things that he does. Because there are times that we could easily say in our own hearts, based on our interpretation, this isn't good. What God is doing isn't good. Because it's not comfortable. Because it's painful. Because we don't like it. But God is doing it for a reason, you know? And as I've, as I've shared with you guys, as, as I'm going through this thing with, with, with my precious bride, you know, it's like that doesn't, that doesn't change. I said this on, on Saturday. It doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change that he's good. It doesn't make him evil. He's just got something in mind that I don't understand. And I'm telling you what, guys, one of the verses that has meant so much to me in all this is looking at Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. When God says, my thoughts are your, not your, tho your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so my thoughts and my ways are above yours. And when I come to terms with that, when I believe that, see, in order us to, for us to find peace, we've got to believe the words of this precious book. We've got to believe it because if we don't believe it, it'll destroy us. But believing it, I'm able to say, as you guys have been able to say in, in your own trials and the things that you've gone through, and some of you right now, different things. I'm not the only one who's, who's gone through stuff. We, we all do. But when we know him for who he is, we are able to say, Okay, God, I know you're all that the Bible says that you are. And I know that your ways, your thoughts are way above mine. I can't even begin to understand it. And I'm good with that. I don't have to understand it. Because I know you do. I trust you. I trust you. You're going to do what is best. You're going to do what brings yourself glory and you're going to bring blessing to us somehow. I can't see it now. I don't know how it's going to happen. But I'm not God. You are. I'm going to leave it to you. I'm going to be still and know that you are God. Allow you to be God. Allow you to do what only God can do. And so we leave it there. We might have to go through that process a dozen times every day. 
But that's what we do. Because that's truth. And so, yes, we will praise him when we see him answering our prayers. And we will praise him when he answers our prayers in a different way than we expect him to. In a different way than we want him to. Amen. And so, Father, even tonight we do praise you. As we see this, this, this psalm and, Lord, the devastation that had taken place in Israel, the heartache that it brought to this psalmist and the way that he writes. And, God, we, we, we can relate to so much of this, God. But, God, we just pray tonight that you would have your way with our hearts. And whatever it is that we're going through now, Perhaps some of us in this room have been going through some relatively smooth times. Thank you for that. But Lord, we know that they don't remain that way because we live in a broken world and its brokenness affects us somehow, some way, on a fairly regular basis. Lord, might we praise you for who you are might we honor you for who you are. Might we worship you for who you are. Thanking you for the things that you do. And praising you for those things as well. But God, have your way. Might we bow to you and all that you are. That you might receive honor and glory in all things. And Lord, through it all, Lord, we know that we will find your peace, your hope, your joy. We'll experience your love. And Lord, we will find blessing. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Through your son, Jesus. And it's his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. That's all.